Welcome to Feminist Erotica, a podcast from Rebellious Magazine for Women. Join Jera, Karen, and Princess for stimulating interviews that explore feminist representations of desire, as well as short and sweet erotic snippets read by the authors themselves. This episode is sponsored by Just the Tip, Rebellious Magazine's inclusive sex and relationship advice column where you'll find interviews with sexuality researchers and educators, as well as compassionate responses to anonymous questions. Check it out at rebelliousmagazine.com slash just dash the dash tip. Welcome to the Feminist Erotica Podcast. My name is Princess McDowell, one of your co-hosts, and today I am joined by A. Andrews, a queer and disabled cartoonist uh, living in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and they are the creator of A Quick and Easy Guide to Sex and Disability, uh, easy to read guide that covers the basics of disability sexuality, common myths about disabled bodies, and practical suggestions for having the best sexual experience possible. A, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. No problem. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with you or your work, uh, can you tell them a little bit about who you are and the types of stuff that you do? My background's a little bit all over the place. I, I started out um, with an art, fine arts, you know, track um, and pretty quickly moved on in, into the art therapy kind of cir- circuit. And in doing kind of one-to-one work with folks, um, I also kind of started exploring Um, I thought it was important that I explore what it's like to be the person telling my story as well, rather than just being a person who's listening and expecting other people to tell me theirs. Um, So I kind of moved into this kind of sector of figuring out ways to have like fuller and bigger conversations with people through telling, through the lens of telling my own stories. Um, And then, you know, when the, the quick and easy guide series kind of sort of started to, to come out, um, with the quick and easy guide to they, them pronouns. Um, and then there was a, a second guide on, on human sexuality and gender identity. Um, I really kind of saw a, a good opportunity to bring into focus the topic of, of sex education for disabled people, um, as I identify as a disabled person. And a lot of um, my general work is kind of just slice of life and what it's like to live with a disability. And I think, um, if I had to think of anything that needed to be out there in the world for disabled people right now, um, that just like exists in very, very limited corners of the internet. And that's about it. Um, sexuality and, and sex education for disabled people, I think is, is really lacking. And so I kind of took on this challenge of trying to bring that into the forefront of those conversations. And, um, the rest was kind of history, you know, Oni was interested and, and we kind of developed this relationship and now the book exists and I'm really kind of happy that it all worked out that way. Absolutely. Go out and pick up a copy of Quick and Easy Guide to Sex and Disability. It is, when I read it and I got it in um, and flipped through it and really just kind of soaked in a lot of the pages, the first thing that stood out to me was like, this is something that everyone needs on their bookshelves just because of the specificity for the disabled community specifically. 
um, and the tools that are in there for them to be able to talk through their specific needs and understanding their own sexuality, but also for those of us who want to learn and want to know more about how we can support the community. Um, the book is something that just kind of encompasses that in a really easy to read, um, you know, quick read. You can read it, you know, you can sit down and get through it in a sitting. You can really take it bite by bite. Um, and that's something that I really, really appreciated about, about the guide when I read it. Can you talk a little bit about your process in creating the guide and, and creating um, the educational aspects that translate for everyone? Yeah, totally. So when I first started making it, I, it was really important for it to feel like it had this disability lens where disabled people who might come across the book would see it and know that it exists for them. I, I think that like disabled people knowing that there is, um, that they are an intended audience is a really like powerful thing in a way, you know, like it, it brings a lot of power naming something and, and saying this is for you in a world where there's too many things that are not for you. But, you know, I, I think that the reality of, of disability is that that umbrella is like so gigantic. <laughs> disability can be, so, so like much a focus in your life, or it could be a, a thing that you deal with, but don't even really like recognize it as like a limitation necessarily. So I really wanted to be able to kind of encompass as many different perspectives on what disability and disability sexuality even is. And to do that, I, I thought it was really important that, that we kind of like took the kid gloves off of like, technically as a disabled person you can do this and more as just a like everybody knows that as a disabled person you can do this here are various ways that this could all play out i think in it's it's challenging i think the most challenging part was probably the quick and easy aspect of it it's not a quick and easy topic ever to discuss sexual education especially when you're talking about you know how we all feel about our bodies or how others care or don't care for them. Right. Um, and so that's a very big, you know, net to try to catch in, in such a small and concise um, thing. So really what my main point of focus was like, how can I make this conversation not feel scary? I think that um, disabled people, uh, whether we like it or not, are so often like medicalized, you know, we're medicalized not only by doctors themselves in the medical community, but I think by people as well, just in, in general day-to-day -day living. So I wanted, I, I think the aspect of doing something that felt a little bit slice of life, a little more conversational, and a little bit more of like, coming from a perspective of like, this exists if you want this information, but I'm not here to like point my finger and wag at you and teach you something, was really important, you know, to just kind of try to figure out the ways that this is not being talked about and and kind of try to come at it from a different angle. It definitely feels like the conversation that you're having with the reader. Like it's it's yeah. not a it's not a singular experience reading this book. Yeah, I yeah, that was my biggest hope. You know, I I didn't want to be you know, a white technically ambulatory disabled person wagging my finger at you and telling you what your experience with this must be like 
people who are living with disability are living with all of the other isms and marginalizations that exist in the world. And so disability can be a major or a minor part of their life, but it's, it's only a part of their identity. And so, yeah, I really wanted something that felt like you and me are just going to chat right now. And if you need this, if any of this resonates with you, if any of this feels good, maybe we can talk about like why this is so important or what we can start working on to like move into a better direction where we feel better about these kinds of conversations happening. Yeah, we touched on it a little bit or a lot of it the last time we talked, which just the, the spectrum and the diversity in the characters, not just, you know, skin color, but also range of disability and that whole thing, because, you know, it's, it's such a, a small thing, but it's very intentional when you create something and make images that a lot of different people can see themselves in. It opens the room so wide to bring everybody into the conversation. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely the hope with it. I think that was also my biggest anxiety with it was just, you know, how much, how little um, is like, it, it's funny because when you're cartooning, there's an idea of like what cartooning is, right? It's like kind of silly. It's kind of, you know, comical or, or fun or playful. But with like drawing disabled bodies, I didn't want to like make it comical. I didn't want to like make it light and funny and silly. I just wanted to be able to have like some kind of authentic way of like showing you that like, yes, this book is for you, but also this book is for this person here or that person there. And so like, I thought that, um, you know, like while I can't possibly go into the various ways that that shows up for people um, outside of my realm of, ex of personal experience, I can certainly um, at least advocate for everybody feeling seen in this space and knowing that this is a conversation that they deserve to be having. So I kind of approached it from that angle of, of just, you know, approaching diversity in like making sure that there is like a space within this book for anyone to kind of feel seen, but also making sure that like we're talking fairly broad so that everyone knows that I'm not like pointing at them and telling them that they need to do one thing one way. So yeah. Yeah. What's the reception been since the book's been out? It's been, honestly, it's been really awesome. Um, I, I get really, uh, the best is getting really nice feedback from, from people where it's, it's been well received or uh, folks that are kind of finding it in little spaces that, that feel good. I know I've, I've been working to try to get clinics copies of the books, usually with like, Usually when you have a book, you know, you get a certain, you write a certain set amount of comped copies into your contracts. And so you have some on hand uh, to kind of do what you want with. And, and usually you use them at book fairs or in talks and in spaces. But of course, with like pandemic times, I'm sitting here, you know, virtually talking to people. And I want those books that exist for me to be in spaces where they're more accessible for people, even though I think like buying the book is an accessible thing. I think that there's something to be said about, you know, if I'm not out in the world kind of handing out these copies, I have been trying to like find corners of the world that could use it. So, so that's been really nice to just hear from back from people that, you know, someone found it in a doctor's office or someone found it in this random kind of, I found this at my local library or, you know, wherever. Um, 
it's nice just knowing that it exists places, but it's all the better when people are reaching out and really wanting to interact around it. I just pictured it on like a dentist desk next to like highlights and then that little like the toy that you push the thing around and it's like a little roller coaster oh yeah like, <laughs> the guide fits like like sex, just sex education books <laughs> absolutely yeah totally i yeah i love the idea of you know of people being able to find it on their own but i also love the idea of of, you know, this is such a thing that is so frequently medicalized and it has to exist in this format because like the people caring for us and and treating us with kid gloves are kind of a part of the problem in us not getting this education. So it's really like it feels more my job to like be putting it in the hands of people who could then be giving better advice or who could then be leading people, you know, like what's the leading a horse to water, you know, like taking that information and knowing that it exists and then helping people to find it. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that while I hope that disabled people like really resonate with it, I'm really hopeful that people in general do so that we can just not necessarily look at it as a they versus us conversation. Yeah, definitely. I want to talk a little bit about communication as it is in the book, because it's such a huge theme where you're kind of walking through basic tenets of establishing good communication boundaries and consent as a disabled person in these different environments where you need to have these conversations with people who are interacting with you. For someone like me, it was very helpful for me to understand the two spaces where disabled people have to have those kinds of conversations. You're having to have them with nurse practitioners or doctors who are regularly seeing you, in addition to partners who you want to share sexy time things with. So can you talk about like the importance of communication in those spaces for disabled people? Because as much as I got from the book and are able to see how I can use those pointers in my own like personal spaces, it also was very revelatory for me to see those in situations where, you know, disabled people would need to have those, those skills also. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, communication is funny because if, if anything, that's, that's it. That's the trick. That's the, the, the key. If you want like the magic recipe for how this can all go down and get better, it's, it's communication. I also think that that's a really frustrating answer for a lot of folks in general. We all always want to have some solution that feels really tangible and communication feels really daunting, I think, for a lot of people. But I think that like, you know, when we kind of strip it all away and in communication with people and just like, what do you see? What do you experience in, in your space? Or like, what do you think about when you think about this topic? I think from the perspective of able-bodied people asking me questions about about the book or about my opinion on a thing has always been like, you know, but like, how do you really ask the questions that feel important to ask? You know, how do I bring this up without it being mean or bad or, or um, like pointed, you know? And the question from disabled folks is usually like, 
how am I ever going to like figure out how to talk about this thing? Afraid of A, B, or C happening. And I don't know how to tell a person that because like that's a scary or weird thing to tell someone or whatever. You know, our, our brains play a lot of tricks on us and tell us that we're always the only one to ever need a thing, you know? But in reality, like when you have a relationship with anyone, especially a sexual relationship with someone, there's needs on both sides of that equation. Everybody needs something in their, within their boundaries, within their communication style, everything um, to make them feel safe in that equation. And so for me, I think that it's really important that we kind of learn and develop a language around our own bodies and how we feel about our bodies because it takes away that like unknowingness away from the equation. You know, if we know that we have that we're anxious about something that our body might do or not do (laughs) you know if we can find a language for talking about that it's usually like a lot more okay than we think that it will be and equally if we you know learn how to ask people about their bodies without making them feel like they're on a platform where they have to disclose their entire life to you in a way that feels invasive that just kind of opens you up for having a more authentic connection and to know how you can keep your partner safe. So the communication game is, is so important, especially because, you know, disabled folks historically are told repeatedly that they're not, they're, their bodies are not worth talking about. Disabled folks are, are, tend to be, you know, treated with this like concept that their body is to be observed and not cared for or you know where there's a lot of childish treatment of disabled bodies there's a lot of medicalized treatment of disabled bodies and and we do become really like I think sensitized as a in general maybe not you know independently or individually but I think we become really sensitive to that to that idea that that maybe like someone else won't be able to handle our body or won't feel comfortable with our body And I think it's less that and more that people need a language for talking to us about it and we need a language for talking to them. And that can only really happen when you know and feel like you deserve to have that conversation. I'm just sitting here thinking like, man, and that's so much a part of self-care, right? It's Mm -hmm. like figuring out ways to positively talk about our own bodies that's not enveloped in shame or misperception or anything like that like trying to figure out the ways to communicate our own needs without falling into like the trap of what we were told to feel about our own bodies yeah and like the comparison of like what can another person do that I can't do or like what does another person need that I don't need you know like those sorts of things we We like talk ourselves in and out of things all the time. We're always, you know, we're always like so in our heads around what others might do or what this might look like for another person or what this might sound like to another person. And it's like, how can we just be better listeners, better talkers, be better at like knowing that even if we don't know how to have this conversation, even if this conversation feels really fumbly, we know that we deserve to be having it with this person. Which is why, you know, I think it's why the communication aspect feels frustrating to folks sometimes. Is like, you know, we want a simplified answer and communication is very hard. 
it's always the last thing that people actually want to do or want to be able to do is just talk about it. Like, no, what if we just like buy a thing or like, what if we just sit in the silence of, and like, no, like (laughs) we need to figure out a way that we can communicate that feels authentic to our own feelings, but also, you know, registers with the other person that we're trying to talk to. Yeah. Well, and it's like once you are actually talking, the kind of dreamlike idea that you have of like what sex is between two people, like in the world and in actual practice is so much different than any kind of like fantasized or idealized version of sex that you have in your brain. You know, we watch a movie and it's like first you kiss. And then you like kind of start touching the shoulders and then you kind of start moving this way. And it's like, they never ask like, is this okay? They never um, ask if you want this, this next thing. Is it okay if I do this thing? They never ask you what you want your body to be called, what you want to be referred to as, you know, that there's so many aspects of the kind of like Disney romance idea that we build up in our heads around sex that just doesn't exist in actual consensual sexual relationships we have these like awkward conversations of like what are you into like what makes you feel good what what do you want to try what are you not interested in trying and like we have to have those conversations otherwise we're like willingly and unwillingly entering into these relationships or these situations that we're not actually ready for and we're not prepared for And I think that the lack of preparedness is the part that makes everything feel really scary. You know, if you can have a conversation with somebody about how you feel about a thing first, I'm really nervous, but I want to try. I'm, I'm really scared that this will happen. Maybe if we do it like this, it would be better for me. You're just setting yourself up to have a more comfortable situation with another person and to give that person the opportunity to treat you the way that you want to be treated in that kind of interaction. And I think a lot of that also starts with like our own conversations with ourselves. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And kind of unlearning what it is that we've heard about our bodies or seen reflected in media and then saying like, I don't ascribe to those things. That's not how I talk about my own self. Like, yeah learning the language of ourselves and then teaching other people that language. Yeah. Learning how to ask for what you want, learning how to even just say like, I don't know what I want is a skill. Like you don't have to know. I think that, I think that sometimes when you talk about the communication piece, people are like, but how do I know? You know, like if this has never happened for me or if this has been notoriously hard for me, how do I know like what I even want in that kind of engagement? And Sometimes you want to try a thing and, and in the midst of trying a thing, it doesn't feel good for you. It doesn't work for you. It doesn't, uh, I thought this was going to be one thing when we started doing it, it felt like another. Great. You know, you know, you had a conversation with this person. You said you wanted to try a thing. You worked on it together. It didn't turn out to be the thing that you love doing or it didn't do what you thought it was going to do. And so you have that opportunity to kind of have a conversation the like post game wrap up, <laughs> have a conversation about, you know, this isn't working and I want it to work. Can we figure out a different way? And right. like flexibility in these situations is key. Like you can, you can have engagements that don't feel like super great. 
and they don't have to feel unsafe or bad for you. You don't have to know exactly what you like or exactly what you want, but you need to know that you have like control in the situation that you're in and that you have like the respect and the engagement of your partner. And from there, you can work on like the language around learning what you want, but you do have to have some kind of like platform. You have to have like a starting point for having those conversations um, because you can get really swept up fast without it. Absolutely. Cause you, it, you know, things kind of just snowball from there mm -hmm. and then you find yourself in a place where you don't remember how you got there mm -hmm. and the work to back up can feel almost as daunting as the work of getting started. Yeah. Yeah. The, the work to like move through a moment can be really challenging when you haven't really figured out an exit strategy or a plan around it. And, you know, d disabled people are not, you know, strangers to the idea of having to accommodate or having to figure out a plan or a way of doing something differently than, than they see it being done. And so I, I think that, like, the, the big thing is that we have these conversations together where we can really, like, figure out what we want out of these kinds of relationships more than anything and talk about things that just, like, sometimes knowing what you don't want is enough. Sometimes knowing exactly what you want is great. And sometimes just knowing what you might want to dip your toe into, what you don't want to even attempt, you know, just like finding where you have hard lines and finding where you have kind of wavering lines in both communication and in touch with another person is really crucial to having sex that works for you. I want to talk a little bit about, so we talked a little bit about self-care, but I think for those of us who are not directly in the disabled community, I think that, you know, we have the larger world as like this really idealized concept of self-care, like mm -hmm. pedicures and manicures and bubble baths and that kind of stuff, where I think the actual work of being a better person and of being a better feminist is educating ourselves in the mass spectrum of discrimination and, and different experiences that we don't have in our own person. A lot of people, I've seen a lot more visibility to disabled people speaking up about their experiences and especially during the pandemic because there are going to be a lot more people who are having to deal with the effects of COVID if they, you know, when they get it, like a lot of people are going to come out of this pandemic with chronic illnesses Mm -hmm. because of the way that COVID just ravages the body. So there's going to be a lot more people that, you know, join the community, so to speak. And folks are speaking up and saying like, hey, we're here. And all these things that we're doing now are things that we've been asking to have done for us to accommodate for like decades. <laughs> you yeah. know, all of us are working from home now. We're going to school from home where a lot of the institutions were saying like, oh, we can't do that. That's not possible. And it, when I read those things from people like on Twitter and, and, you know, articles and stuff, I just feel like the, the tone I get from people is like, oh, okay, we'll just, you know, spit in our faces because now <laughs> that other people need it. Uh, now you can make it happen, but we've been asking for it for so long that no one listened to what mm -hmm. we had to say because discrimination. Can you, can you talk about how it's been seeing so much discourse around disability in mainstream and Twitter and those activist spaces now that we are 
eight months into this pandemic? Sure. I mean, it's, it's definitely a loaded one. I have many like personal experiences and feelings. And then I have like, you know, like my, well, you know, I have my (laughs) personal experience of, of things where I, I certainly, you know, go through the motions of feeling like where the hell was this, (laughs) you know, like where, where was all this care before or, or especially right now, as you said, eight months into it, when people are getting a little tired of it, I experience a lot of like, what happened to COVID? Everyone's like living their lives again. And like, it's still still here. I'm still in my house. But I do think that when I can kind of get out of my head and like really read through the various perspectives of it, I, I think that while there is certainly like divisiveness and there can be hard feelings that are really valid and fair, I do think that the disability community recognizes in general, you know, like I think that the community is certainly not a monolith, but I think that disabled people very much like stand in support of one another. I think the the thing that's funny about, you know, the activism that's taken place is that so frequently when ableism is being combated in, in workplaces and out in the world, you know, access isn't necessarily like just for me because I need this extra thing. You know, it's for any of us. Like, I'm glad that you have this like 40 stair mansion on the hill, but like, what are you going to do when you're old? Like, or what are you going to do when you break your leg? Or like, you know, there's like various different times when like this can even benefit you. And as a general rule of thumb, I really like, hate the argument of like this matters because it could also affect you because I don't think that's the point I think the point is that it affects people right now and it always has affected people and it'll continue to affect people and whether or not it affects me personally is kind of irrelevant I think for as much divisiveness there is and and for as much personal kind of like irritation around certain kinds of conversations that exist I find a lot of hope that people are at least talking. You know, I, I think that we all know a bad take when we see them. We all know, like, infighting doesn't get us anywhere in our communities. Like, But, like, a lot of us are, you know, uh, identify how we identify. And a lot of us have a lot of things to fight against. We're not all rich, straight white men <laughs> living on Capitol Hill. That's real, you know? And I, I think that at its core, we all know that infighting is not the key to liberation. And I think that we do know that, that liberating ourselves as disabled people is more important than deciding whose rights matter right now or whose, whose fight will be the fight that we fight for. I, I think that the fact that conversations are existing on such a, a major kind of platform and in such a major way around COVID is something that I can find some hope within. Because you're right, like, my needs are more often than not considered extra. <laughs> you know, when, when I need something, it's just an absolutely above and beyond need. And I think that with COVID and with the pandemic and all of the rearranging for the better of everyone, people are starting to realize that those needs aren't necessarily individualized as much as they used to be. And while that can be really frustrating because we've been yelling that, who cares when it's being noticed now, you know, I'm 
I had a pretty major surgery a couple of, of about a year ago, a little over a year ago now. And for my, you know, day job, office job, I was denied any opportunity to work from home. It wasn't something that my office could do. We weren't set up for that. There was no technology to make that happen. And certainly when COVID came around, we packed bags in an afternoon and we have never been back to work. And it's been about eight months now, moving towards nine, and we won't be back at work until at least the summer. And I think in the beginning, I certainly had my gripey feelings about that. And, and my like, you know, where was this when I really needed it? And I would have only been one person. And this would have been easy to accommodate. Clearly, we've been able to do it on a widespread scale here. And um, we could have planned for that, you know. And I had those moments and, and I had those feelings. And, and now I'm just, you know, I'm grateful that this exists now. And I'm grateful that when this comes up for me or another person, that we have something to look back on and say, this worked before, we can make this work. And, you know, I think that none of us are strangers to the road being long and unfair. So I think when we get over, like, the personal feelings of hurt over things not working before when they could have, there is that hopefulness that, like, we can be better next time around or we are louder now. And I think there's so many people doing that work that it would be a real shame to stay stuck in feeling bitter about the things that weren't working because those people never stopped trying, you know, there's disability Twitter specifically is amazing. Like folks are on there. They are like yelling every day. They are like fighting the, the good fight all every day, all day. People have made ableism their life, you know, like fighting this, their life and yeah. activism. And I think that I can be grumpy. I can have my bad days, but I'll always be grateful for like people being loud and unapologetic and continuing to fight for people that maybe support them now, but didn't support them six months ago, you know? And I think that as a collective, while we have infighting like any other group of people, I, I think that the disability community is very much here with open arms for anybody that needs somebody to yell in the ears of, of their community for them, for sure. Yeah, disability Twitter is like where it's at. Um, it really is. <laughs> I, it's yeah, I added a bunch of uh, folk to my timeline just to make sure I was getting that perspective. And like, listen, they will call you out. They will be like, no, see, actually, let's reframe this. And it's so important. I think as we talk about self-care and we talk about um, finding hope and I don't want to say tempering our responses, but just being aware of our reactions and feelings about things. I mean, as a Black queer woman, I am very aware of my reactions to things. And I do feel the sense and, and connect with the sense of like, the things that we're asking for, they're not just us being like selfish. I mean, there are things that would benefit the whole and allowing ourselves to be upset that we even have to ask for some of these things. But then there is the move beyond like, you know what, I'm just going to be happy that now we can get to this point and like people understand the full context of please don't kill me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, going back a, like a tiny, tiny bit to you asking about like reception of the book and all of that, 
really the only thing that I don't like answering or like really responding back back to is when when folks kind of insinuate that I'm like the first or the only doing any work that I'm doing because for one genuinely my work is in line one in line of many and and also it's built upon like the perspectives of so many people doing this work and so many people educating me primarily disabled black women i think that the disability community has a racism problem a very very big racism problem and i think that we honor and advocate for white disabled people in ways that we don't stand for and don't honor black disabled people in that fight who are really leading that fight and so i really resent when i'm being asked questions around like what is it like to be one of the only people creating content like this what is it like to be bringing up a subject that no one brings up because that's not true. And it's not a thing I want ever implied in the work that I'm doing. Hey, hey, this is Princess McDowell, co-host of the Feminist Erotica podcast, inviting you to join our book club, The Lit Lab. Every other month, we hop on a Zoom call and discuss an erotica book with you in the community. And then afterward, we interview the author with your questions and a few of our own. This January, we're diving into Best Lesbian Erotica Volume 5, edited by Sinclair Sexsmith. For more information, head over to FeministErotica.com and look for our About Us page, or find us on Twitter, at Feminist Erotic, for the link in our bio. Have you ever read Care Work? Yeah, it's on my list here. Yeah, it's great. It's brilliant. And it's a a collection of essays that are uh, top-notch. I would definitely recommend that as, as reading material for anyone especially in the realm of self-care. Like how do we, how do we practice self-care when we're also practicing justice work and we're also practicing, like when our lives are social commentary or like into like a political tool. And it's really like a beautiful act of like advocating for like not only the care of your people, but the care of yourself. It's really good. Yes. Um, also one of their uh, disability visibility oh, um, yeah. by Alice Wong. These books, add them to your bookshelves, folks. Like expand your library, add it into what you're reading, expand your justice work because it is absolutely necessary for the liberation of all people. Ain't nobody free till we are free. I want to end and ask you this one last question. In, sure. in the middle of all of this craziness and the whole 2020 has just been a mad roller coaster ride with no seatbelts. What is bringing you joy today? What is bringing me joy today? Hit <laughs> me at the, the hardest question right at the end. Right. Um, what's bringing you joy today and every day in the face of like the endless news cycle and in the face of all of the impending doom I feel like that exists in our day-to-day living right now is just knowing that like the world has yet to be great for us, that we're not slipping back into something terrible. We're just getting louder about it being so. And I have a lot, like, I know that doesn't sound joyous. (laughs) That sounds really depressing. But I think that when we view this as like, oh, this is the worst year yet, everything used to be fine and it was terrible, 
nothing was fine. We were quiet. And I think there's something like really beautiful about seeing the world get loud, even, even when our power's not quite there yet. And I think being able to call it what it is and say that the, this, the world has never been great for a lot of us yet. And I get a lot of joy in knowing that we have always found a way to survive within this system and within these spaces. And we will always take care of our own. That is the only thing that really gives me hope with anything right now, because I could easily tumble into the pit of despair. Everything is awful. <laughs> but we have, we've been surviving this. We've, we've been fighting this. And, you know, maybe saying that we've been surviving this is a little obtuse because a lot of us haven't. And so maybe that's putting a little bit of a cart before a horse. But I think that we as a collective, we as people are never, ever going to go down without that fight in us. And that brings me a lot of hope. And it keeps me positioned to fight. It keeps me ready to like, stand for the people that I say that I stand for. It keeps me ready to rest when I need to and tell myself that we'll have a fight tomorrow, I can take a nap. (laughs) You know, it's, it's the thing that reminds me that it's okay to like, need a second to gather yourself and to get back to it, because we're going to have that opportunity to show up day in and day out. So that's maybe what's bringing me joy. What's bringing you joy? Sopapilla cheesecake. Oh, that's a better answer. (laughs) I want that. (laughs) Hey, Andrews, where can people find your work? Oh, boy. Um, So my book is kind of out everywhere. You can buy it anywhere from Amazon to your local bookstore, which I would recommend over Amazon. But absolutely. I do get that, you know, anywhere you can find it is good. And uh, I am underscore an an ghost, G-H-O-S-T, on all my social media, on Instagram, Twitter. So you can find me around there. And my work's a little bit all over. I I just did a a piece with the visual aids out in New York City. Um, So there's a project that I did with a friend of mine on HIV care access that's been pretty cool. And um, I'm working on some COVID resources for MDH at the moment as well. So like the path to navigating COVID for folks primarily living in Minnesota in terms of tangible resources, but in terms of COVID information, it could be universal. So we're trying to get that up and running online as well. Usually if you follow me on any of my social media, you'll always have the opportunity to find whatever projects are lurking all around the internet. It has been a pleasure talking to you, pleasure catching up with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This, yeah, this was a lot of fun. I feel like I I could hang with you and ramble forever. (laughs) Yeah. Feminist Erotica is a podcast from Rebellious Magazine for Women, hosted by Jara Brown, Princess McDowell, and Karen Hawkins. If you have an idea for a future episode or want to share your thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at feministerotica at rebelliousmagazine.com. Follow us on Instagram at Feminist Erotica Podcast, on Facebook at Feminist Erotica, and on Twitter at Feminist Erotica. And make sure you subscribe to us wherever you devour podcasts.